Tonight's sermon text is from Isaiah 26. I am in distress. They looked for you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was on them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes, who cries out in her birthing pains when she's near delivery. That's what we were because of you. I am. We were pregnant. We writhed, but we gave birth to wind. We have accomplished no rescue in the earth, and the inhabitants of the worlds have been unaffected. Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. You who live in the dust, wake up and sing for joy, because your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Come, my people, go in your rooms and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. Look and see, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal the blood shed on it and will no longer hide its slain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26. Isaiah uses a particular picture for Isaiah 26. It actually happens a number of times. I, I want to kind of alert you to it. It's kind of an interesting picture, and it might be a little foreign to you. It might be a little distant to you, simply because we live in such a different world. We live in such a different world. Does anybody remember what it was like before automobiles? No, obviously none of us do. I'm not going to pick on anybody either. But if you read about it, one of the, one of the, one of the challenges when the cars started on, the ro- and on roads and on streets is that roads and streets at least used to be pre, pre-automobile. They used to be where everybody played, where everybody walked, where everybody gathered, where everybody talked, where everybody met one another. It was where you did almost all of your relationship and business. It was on the street itself. It was the communal area that we, everybody lived. So when Jesus says things like this, broad is the way of destruction, broad is the... He's talking about the way where everybody hangs out, in the street. Everybody was in the highway. Everybody would be in the common areas doing business together, working together, talking together. It was lively and full of, full of life. You see this, in, you see this in, around the world in different countries, different cultures, even today, where that is what the street is. It's where we all meet. Well, in this particular chapter, early on it says, we sit in the paths of your judgment. And here's the picture I have. Here's the picture I have. God is walking down their street. God's walking. It's like he's there. It's like he's there, and he's on his way to do business. Look look at at verse. Look at at the language. Look at the verbiage of, 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 of verse 21. Look and see. The Lord is coming out of his place. It's like, it's like wait, the Lord came out of his house and he's coming down the street. And there's an idea, and this is very real to the people of God. It, it, it begins with Abraham. When Abraham, when God tells Abraham he's on his way to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? God's on his way. He's on his way. And there's a sense the prophets have again and again that he's on his way in this world, right down through the common concourse of life. He's on his way to what? To judge the world. He's coming to judge the world. And this, 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 there's, it's almost like a, I would call like a, kind of this assumed inertia. God is coming with judgment. Are you ready? God is coming. We wait in the streets. We're, so we, we know he's coming. We know he's gotten up out of his place. 
And he's going to do something about the wickedness of the world. Otherwise, he doesn't have character, right? He has to do something, right? God's coming. And that expectation, that's, what, that's where the images, some of these images begin to make some sense. And so, in this idea of God coming, and what's this picture? Um, remember Abraham says, what does Abraham say to God? Because you know God's on his way to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And what does Abraham say? He begins to bargain with God, talk with God. And the idea that I want you to have here, the idea that God tells you, get this, get this, this is grace, y'all. This is God's love on display. God tells us his intention. Why? Why would God tell you his intention? What would be the purpose of that? Why would he tell you that he's going to come and judge? What, 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 so you would have time to do something about it, right? So it would be time to scramble, time to get ready, time to repent, time to change, time to do something. The idea that God is coming. The whole idea is do something about it. Get ready. Go pursue him along the way. Stop him. See if you can talk to him the way Abraham does. Go and meet with him. And the oper- there's an opportunity for relationship. There's an opportunity for like an interception. There's an opportunity for something different to happen. Because God's on his way. He's gotten up out of his place. And he's going to do something about unrighteousness and iniquity. And bad things that are in the world. And I bring this up. Is, let's begin in verse 16. And what I want to do is I want to work through the lines of, the, the lines of, this, of this passage and I went with this idea of God's impending judgment shadowing over the people of God. You can't miss this as backdrop. We sit in the paths of your judgments. Okay. How do, and what do we do when we're there? So what I want, what I want to look at today is, well, let's just, just go through the scriptures and see what we learn from them and see what we can learn together. Look at verse 16. I am... Uh, by the way, look at the end of verse 17. It says, I am again. That's the sacred name of God, Yahweh. You notice that it begins at the very beginning of verse 16 and the very end of 17. That's what it's like in the Hebrew. What you're looking at is a perfect little poem. It's a perfect short poem for you to remember. It's bracketed by the sacred name of God. But I want you to notice something here. Something happens between verse 16 and verse 17. I am in distress they looked for you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was on them. But then, how did you notice this? They, they becomes like a pregnant woman who rises, who cries out in her birthing pains when she's near delivery. They becomes we. Did you notice that? Did you notice the shift that happens there? It's, it's, a, little, it's a little startling. It's a little... It's a little bit, it could be a little off-putting. I mean, usually when people are talking, they stay consistent in, the, in whatever voice or whatever, whatever mode of address they're using. But the prophet is talking about them, and then all of a sudden, them becomes we. Them becomes we. Them becomes we. What would be the importance or relevance of this, of this, this subtle change in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the prophet here? And I think it's, his, it's, it's, it's important that we reach into the heart of the prophetic voice itself. For the prophetic voice always can do this. You, they, right? 
they, and that's the pointing, that's the accusatory tone, right? And then what is we? For whenever I point at you, what's happening? Three fingers are pointing back at me. And there's a wonderful tension that the prophets experience. Sometimes they can say, thus saith the Lord, you all have to repent. And then sometimes they'll say, thus saith the Lord, we all have to repent. Now, why, what, what's, what's, what's important about that? Why is that, kind of a, why is that a precious gift to us? Why is it precious to us that Isaiah uses the we all of a sudden? And I, and I, and I think if, if we reach into it, we're going to see something. We're going to see something in the prophet. We're going to see something in the, the tones of the gospel of our God. And that is, you see, there, there, there is no hierarchy in the kingdom. It's not like that. You know, all right, so here I am a preacher. I'm here to announce the kingdom of God, right? But all I am is one beggar telling another beggar, where I found bread. There's no superior place to stand in the kingdom. You get this? There's no, there's no exalted place. There's no levels in our Father's kingdom. There people, you know, Corey's not on some super spiritual level above us, right? We all believe that anyway. But, but, neither, but neither is Sarah, neither is Ted, neither am I. There are no such things. These things don't exist. Now, so what I hear in, what I hear in the prophets, them and then we, what I hear is, no, no, I don't miss the point here. A true, a true prophet of God always identifies with the sins of his people because they're his too. He always does this. The true servant of God will always humble himself before his God himself. He will do it with his people. It will always be we. There will always be a we that comes because it's always us together. And I, there's something about it, the tone and attitude right out the gate. The tone and attitude of the people of God is different when it comes to su suffering and failure and fear and, and doubt and security or, 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 or futility. Whatever the conversation is, we don't have a them versus us kind of attitude. We can talk about them. We can talk about objective truth about where people are at. But no sooner do we understand the falling condition and failure around us than we own it. We own it ourselves. This is always the posture of the children of God. It's never, it's never, a, it's never a, a, a pointing at or, or using our faith as kind of some sort of billy club to beat people or, or to win, you know, to win an argument or to, to make someone look... To some, all these different ways we use an us versus them idea. And yet in the gospel, in, in, in the reach of the gospel of love, the, the, the prophet himself lives out dependence on God. Dependence himself on God. I don't know, I just think that's fabulous. I, I, I want to know, to me it's so precious that Isaiah arrived in suffering and discovered wind too. It's not just a Chris problem, right? <laughs> it's an Isaiah problem. Hey, that's everything, y'all. Because and, and every single time, and I always say, here, you know, you know what we should be? We should be adorned with this posture over and over again with everybody we love and meet. If we would be winsome, let's say you want to criticize somebody or, or introduce somebody to their fall or show them how they're suffering, something about them, about, about their sin character. Christ even warns us. You'll only do that successfully if you're in a position of such humility such humility, you're confessing wooden planks all the time as you seek to take out splinters 
What? That's, a, that's a, a them we kind of conversation, right? And that's a completely different posture. Oh, I, you know what I, I, look, this is what I want from us. This is what I want our posture to be in this world, in this generation. It's, a, it's, ne- it's always a we that we get to. It's all, we have to say objective things. But we get to the we quick in our love, our grace, our compassion, our identification with sinners. Because remember, God loves sinners. So the more deeply we identify with that group, the better shape we're in. Our God is a God of abundant grace. Just as, look, so, so the preacher, Isaiah is alive with a self-awareness of his need for grace and his own experience before God. It's not merely they, it's we. That's so vital because for this next part. Because what is the truth that we need to, Isaiah needs to understand with his people, that they need to understand together? And that is the discipline of loving grace. This is why I wanted to teach on this. I wanted to, this is where I wanted to go. Isaiah is living it out in the we and the they, the way he's talking. But what's really happening here? This, teach, this text is teaching us that God employs, God employs suffering and your experience of futility and your experience of personal, professional failure to drive you to him and to drive you to mistrust yourself and to finally give up on your own hope and your own power and your own strength. There's something in this text that just reaches out and grips my heart. It it just seems to reach, reach out across time and space from this ancient man, and he's describing something we all are aware of. Look, look, what is the what, what is what is the experience here? We whispered, in, we whispered in your ear. We whispered, uh, whispered these prayers. What's the, what's the image of whispered prayers? Does anybody remember the great whisper prayer in the Bible? The great woman who's whispered prayers wound up with a miracle birth? Whispered prayers are the urgent prayers. They're the quiet prayers. They're the prayers of fervency. That's Hannah. That's Hannah's picture. The whispering prayer. The earnest prayer. But, you know, it's... Seems like we're being taught here, though, is that God's loving grace is not about your earnestness or the sincerity by which you cry out to Him. And God's loving grace is not about your goals. All right, your goals are your aims. What's the goal here? Well, there was a goal here. It was described. If you look at the end of verse 18, we have accomplished no rescue, and the inhabitants of the world have been unaffected. It was one thing to say that we, 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 we had sincerity and, and earnest sincerity to go to God, but we also had good goals, and we, and we set our goals properly. Isn't that what the kingdom's about? Not our Father's kingdom. Not his loving grace and mercy here. No. But it's also, look, look at the end here, it's also about, not about your, surf, your, 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 your actual suffering itself, writhing, this picture of, a, of, of the horrors and terrors of birthing pains. It's not about your suffering earning you anything. God's loving grace is not about those things. I, I, 
Like that, that, that's everything right, isn't it? If my people who, who are called by my name will humble themselves and cry out to me and, and obey my ways, I will turn here. Have you heard this verse quoted to you about how the hopes we could have if we finally got our acts together to really serve? Futility and wind is the product of prayer, good goals, and sincere, real suffering. Futility. And that is God's design. And this is grace. I'm reading this, you know, I'm reading it. And I remember I was talking to, talking to, to, uh, to Corey about it. And of course I'm getting all kind of excited. And I'm like, do you know what that means? Do you know what that means? That means the curse is a blessing. I never thought of this before. The curse, when God curses, we, we quote the curse and he curses the ground. That's his love. You see, God could have left us smug and satisfied and content in our sin. But his grace is such what? No, he leaves us futility. Some constant, constant, right out of reach, right out of the reach. Of the, you know, look, this, you know, these people amass all these, this vast wealth and they can't even enjoy it. You know, they can't even enjoy the things they have. And this constant searching. And, and, you know, I was reading, I was... My heart was deep inside of Ecclesiastes this week, you know, reading, reading Solomon's, his, his wonderful thinking about this. What are we, what are we, what are, what's happening here? And, and it says that God calls it his discipline. It's called discipline here in verse 16. When your discipline, it's God's discipline. It's not, it's not anger. It's not wrath. Take a, look, take a look down in, uh, in verse 20. Come, my people, go into your rooms, shut your doors behind you, hide yourselves for a little while until the fury is past. This has nothing to do with rage. This has nothing to do with that. No, this is God at his most tender, and our Father is so tender with me. And I, I think this is what I've seen, okay? You see, God took a conceited and arrogant man, and because his love is greater than my conceit, he let me eat as much futility as I could stomach. And then some. Just so I would learn. What? Well, what we're about to learn in this text. Again, I want to share one more thing about this. You see, when I was first introduced to the concept of futility and existential futility, existential, what's the point of everything? What's the point? You know? What does it matter? Futility to me always seem like an excuse. Because you see, if everything's futile, why do I have to be a good person? If everything's futile, why do I have to work? Why do I have to care about people? If it just doesn't matter in the end, why can't I just live the way I please? Why do I have to exercise any self-control whatsoever? Why, can't I, why should I not hone pleasure to the sharpest edge possible so I can at least, I can at least have some private joys? to buttress against the oblivion I'm facing at the end of all things. That's about, that's, I guess that's about the hopes of San Francisco in a nutshell, I think, right? Sounds like, sounds like a good way to sum it up. That's what I would be if I was them. What I would do. But it doesn't work, and it's not working. But, you know, discipline. So, to that end, when you're in a place of suffering that's leading to an experience of more and more futility, when you're in that place where 
You can't solve the problem either with prayer or plans or goals or where the suffering itself doesn't seem to be leveraging life. What do you do? What do you do? You start praising God. You know, it's, 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 this amazing thing happens. This is very prophetic. Take a look at the end of verse 18. And the inhabitants of the world have been unaffected. And I put a break in there. I put a break. There's no break in the Hebrew. There's a break in my little line there. So you can see how different the ideas are. But look at verse 19. And look at the words 19 just blows you out of the water. It just doesn't stop. It's like, it's like, here's the futility of life. Here's the futility of existence. Here's the dust in your mouth. Nothing means anything. Now! Wake up and sing for joy. Dead will rise. Guess what? Guess what? You're ready. You're ready. When God takes you to this school, and that's what discipline is, education and training, and when he takes you through that process in his love, it's to deal with the conceit and the arrogance and the independence and the, want, the desire to use futility as your, as your excuse, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Well, because tomorrow we die. What does it matter? We have an answer for that. Oh, we have an answer for that. And what I saw was happening in that abrupt change from verse to verse, such a poetic thing to do, such a prophetic thing to do, in that abrupt change was that wonderful way that, that God just comes in from eternity and plunges himself into the incarnation, plunges himself into this world, into its death and misery and sin and futility itself. Brings Jesus. And I love the aggression, I love the eruption, the, the uncontrollable joy that's pouring out. Wait a second, you've tasted futility. Have you finally drunk futility? Did you finally drink it? Because if you have, there's an after, there's a, there's a chaser. <laughs> there's a chaser. It's Jesus. Now, what I, what I realized here, he was... You know, I want to see how I want. I want to put this the way that I want. I want you to hear the way I wrote it down. Because, well, here, look at the language first, uh, and I'll make sense as to why I'm going to say this. Wake up and sing for joy. Look at the last two lines here, because your dew is a dew of light. Now, it's a very, very weird thing to say, right? Very weird. Very odd. Very odd. Very odd. Very odd. Any, 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 anybody, any good biblical theologians know ancient Israelites, when they heard about dew, when they heard about dew in the morning, when they heard about dew out in the morning, do you know what they were told they were supposed to remember? What, what, what came with the dew for 40 years in the desert? What came every morning with the dew, except for Sundays, Sabbaths, Saturdays, huh? Manna. Manna. Your dew is a dew of light. All right, do you make dew? Does anybody here make dew? By the way, in Gaza, they get dew 250 days a year. That's how, that's how essential it is for their crops and for everything to grow. Dew is the way life comes. And, and that, dew is life for them. Your dew is a dew of light. And listen to this word, your earth will give birth. Now, the word for give birth, it's not the same word as giving birth in verse um, 17 and verse 18. And no, in fact, it's an unusual word. It just means to drop things. You know, just to drop things out. Like to drop them out. It's very passive. It's just dropping. 
dew and the earth will drop. And they say give birth because it's such a weird thing to say that the, 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 earth, the earth will drop its dead. It just sounds weird, doesn't it? Just like, boop, 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 boop. And then I, I have this picture, this image of Jesus dripping with Matthew's. See, Jesus drips with death-breaking power. Jesus drips. Our God in his love, his grace drips with it. His love drips with cosmic power to change everything. Drink as, drink as deep as you want of futility. The chaser is better. Now, Now, this idea, this idea here that this exploding out the gate of grace. I want us to get excited about it. I guess there's even a sense here, if I would paint Jesus for you, if I could portray Christ, if I could visibly put him before you as I think these verses do here, and his works, that he would drip before you with beauty. You know, for a moment there, as I'm talking about him dripping with this cosmic, death-breaking power, for a moment I can finally get why David says, I just want to look at you. I just want to see. I just want to see. I get it. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you if he drips that kind of resurrection power? You see, when you have a vision of Jesus like that, in that kind of majesty, you get why that one woman grabbed the head of his robe. And I'm thinking, they're thinking, if he's dripping with this, don't you just want to stand under him so maybe you can catch it? Maybe it'll hit you. Maybe you'll have the benefit. That's what I want. All right, why am I so excited this is about grace and about Jesus? Well, I tell you, I can tell you why. That would tell you why. This is noticed, uh, it's kind of funny. Verse 19 says, your dead will rise, your bodies will rise. Now, now look, now look, it addresses you who live in the dust. Now, I translate it live, that word is dwell, but the word is those who are living in the ground. The idea is, it's not people who are alive. It's people who are dwelling in dust, the living the live graves. There's a picture there. My translation didn't really say it. But here's the funny, here's the kicker. Have you ever spoken to a dead body? They don't respond. They don't say anything. They don't get up. They don't get up. They don't rejoice. They don't run into an inner room to hide. They're dead. That's when I realized that Isaiah, you see, Isaiah is saying something about who God is from the very beginning. What is God's word preached? When God says, let there be light, what happens? Light happens. What happens when preachers say, put your trust in Jesus today. Wake up! Wake up, O sleeper, from your foggy notions. Wake up from your death inside. Wake up! And when I say it, I'm just a man. My words have no power. But these are God's words I'm saying. And where God's words happen, what happens to people? He drips. He drips. He oozes. (laughs) He oozes what? Death-breaking power. His words are power. His words are life. And that's why the dead rise. That's why Lazarus in the grave hears him. (laughs) Because that's the power of his word. The dead can hear and live and sing because Jesus is here. 
He drips resurrection power. The Son of God has come. I know you fear death. I know we fear so many things. So wake up. Wake up. I would, for some reason, that wake up thing. Did, uh, I was thinking of the Folgers in your cup. You know, like, you know, like smelling the, smelling the, yeah, something about a good smell in the morning. Wake you up on it. It's a good smell of coffee. Mm. Do you know, God, Jesus, God often talks about how his son is a sweet-smelling sacrifice. Can you smell Jesus yet? Wake up and smell Jesus. God is offering life at the word of his power. And that's why Jesus is called the word. By the way, it is common in this age to be very critical of preaching because preaching looks so stupid. I come up here and I prate and prattle like a... Let's not, let's not complete that thought. But whatever. And people, for, ever since the beginning, people have talked about, you know, preaching is a waste of time. It's foolish. But this text is teaching us something different. Isn't it? Where God speaks, dead hearts are made alive. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. What's the next command? Wake up first. Wake up and see it. Wake up and alert. Praise him. Praise him now. Your striving isn't the answer. Praise him. Isn't this a wonderful wake up? Isn't this a wonderful wake up, brother, to learn that, that all that futility and, 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 and the powerlessness that futility made you feel was just God wanting to teach you. Yes, 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 you were that powerless. You have always been that powerless. I love you. I have raised you from death to life. Oh. I'm sitting here, honestly, because you and I have talked a lot, Corey and I have talked a lot about despair and futility the last three or four years. I think that's probably our most consistent theme together. We're like despair brothers, you know. And, 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 but, but, but we were rejoicing over this, this text together because we were both sitting there going, well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. If futility was what God was aiming at, then he hit it. So you know what that means? We're in the place to wait for him to drip new life on us. You see? He's not dripping on me yet, but I'm sure it's coming. I'm I'm serious. I'm waiting. I want to wait in his his presence for him to drip on me. (laughs) That's the picture of the cosmic death-breaking power of God in Isaiah's poetry. He tells you, wake up. So I'm telling you tonight, wake up. The Holy Spirit is here for you to wake up. If you want to wake up and see uh, that aha moment about who you are and who God is, it's ready for you right now if you want it. Second, praise him. Now that you can identify you could do nothing to earn your salvation, praise him. It's free. There's so much joy and delight for us as believers when we are set free from earning and performing, earning and performing, earning and performing. No, that's all futile. No, that works. Only grace works. Now, I want to bring the sermon to a close with this. The last command. So he tells these dead people, as his cosmic death-breaking power drips on us, as we receive him, as we put our trust and faith in him, as we have confidence that he, he is the one who raises the dead, and his grace is active for sinners, we can praise him. <laughs> But you know what's funny? 
to run and hide, though? You see, it's funny, in this last text, when he tells them, look, when God's fury comes, run and hide in an inside room. Now, 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 let's all be really honest. If God's fury was coming, do you think that a little room upstairs would help? Anybody? Seriously, if, 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 if everything's going to go down and we're going to, and some major catastrophe is hitting us right now, is anybody going to be safe in a room upstairs? Because that seems to be what it's, no, 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 not at all. Oh, no, no, don't you get it? When God says, go and hide, hiding, hiding? Now we're talking about Jesus. Hiding from fury, hidden from wrath, protected from the onslaught, protected from the fury that passes by. Well, that's Jesus on the cross. It's funny to me that everything we're talking about here Everything that this text shows us is just how Jesus winds up loving us anyway. You know, God is the ultimate you versus him, right? God could always say they and point at all humanity, couldn't he? God could look at all of us and say them and totally mean it and totally speak truthfully. But what did he instead choose to do? He chose to take the them and make it what? We. He became a man. He became a man. What Isaiah is doing here by identifying with his people, that's just what Jesus did. That's what we all do when we love him. We're all like him. We identify with the people we're loving and with. What's the second thing that Jesus does? What's the second thing he does? He drinks futility all the way down to the bottom. Imagine, imagine futility is this massive cup of wrath, right? And this is futility, and it's eternal. It's all the rage. And what it, this is the picture, right? He even says, he even says to the Father, is there any way we can, I don't want the cup. Please, don't, is there any way we can, I don't, he knows what the cup means. He knows what the, no, I don't want the cup. But not as I will, but as you will. Because it, what's the cup? Well, it's eternal futility. And he drinks it all the way to the bottom. For Spencer. For me. For you. Praise him. And then finally, finally, Jesus drips resurrection in his own body. He becomes the fulfillment of Isaiah's hopes. My hopes. I, I want to praise God. There's an answer to futility. And I want to praise him even further that his futility was purposefully loving for me. And I'm super thankful. <laughs> Let's pray. Dearest Father, dearest Father, I, I find myself so confused by grace. I just find myself so often just being like, I, I thought I was supposed to be a better person. I thought I was supposed to want it more or, or somehow, somehow be the right kind of person that you would like or, or, or have the right goals or strive. And I've tasted so much futility, so much failure over and over. Oh, we all of us have. I mean, we've, we've tasted so much vanity and meaninglessness around us. It's just A lot of us are just drinking so we don't have to think about it. 
Father, I thank you that you're using futility to drive me to you. And I want to say thank you. I want to ask you to keep doing it for all of us. Look, we don't like giving birth to wind. It's not fun. It's not fun to plan and to pray and to pursue to find, oh, eh, it didn't come to much. But it's such a different thing to look for your resurrection, grace, and power to drip and anoint us for ministry. Father, put us in a place to receive grace. If anybody here tonight has not woken up yet, you know, like woken up, the way you wake people up, only you can wake people up that way. Father, would you just, would you come in and wake somebody up tonight? tonight? Wake somebody up. Wake them, rouse them. Let them praise. Let them run to Jesus and hide until your fury passes by. Father, I, I, um, I, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.